I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of coercion, sexual abuse, and suicide that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 40-year-old Nuri Alexander had been driving for five hours. She'd left the highway long ago in favor of off-roading across the Inyo Desert's packed dirt. She should have reached her destination by now. And yet, an endless plain stretched before her, teasing a journey that would never end. Nuri didn't know what she was looking for exactly. Spiritual awakening? Ascension? Obliteration in a mystical ball of flame? Her teacher, Carlos Castaneda, had always assured Nuri that she'd never die. Of course, he also claimed that he'd never leave her, and a few days ago, he'd broken that promise. Now, on a hot day in April 1998, she was utterly alone. Unless, of course, there was a deeper meaning to Carlos's teachings. Maybe he'd been speaking metaphorically or existentially, anything. Nuri needed to believe there was something more, or else her entire life, her entire existence, meant nothing. She could feel the truck slowing. She pressed on the gas pedal, but still rolled to a stop, out of gas. She was in the middle of the desert, miles from the road, and now she had no working car either. Nuri refused to accept the situation. There had to be something deeper. So she climbed out of the truck. The heat of the sun beat down on her face and skin. She was already thirsty. But she had to prove to herself that she was a powerful witch. That was more important than life or death. So Nuri began to walk. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. 
And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we take a look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just stream Cults for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we told the story of Carlos Castaneda, who published books in which he claimed to experience spiritual awakening under a Native American Yaqui shaman. But several skeptics found that his memoirs were complete fabrications. Frustrated with public criticism, Carlos and his most devoted students developed a new spiritual program called Tensegrity. This week, we'll explore the ways Carlos recruited new practitioners to Tensegrity and the hellish levels of control he exerted over his followers. We'll also discuss his death, which led to the probable suicide of five of his highest-ranking followers and lovers. By the 1970s, Carlos was in his 40s and had developed a set of beliefs that he shared in profitable classes and workshops. He claimed that there is no such thing as objective truth, only perception. And according to Carlos, once a student fully accepted that belief, he or she would gain the ability to perform magic. Spells ranged from psychic attacks and otherworldly visions to teleportation and shapeshifting. The fact that outsiders never witnessed these displays of power was just further evidence of the subjective nature of reality. In other words, Carlos lied constantly, but developed a framework that made it impossible for true believers to fact-check his claims. To better control his followers, he invited the most enlightened ones to live with him in Westwood, a suburb of Los Angeles, under the guise of helping them develop their magical skills. The people who were initiated into his inner circle found that life on the compound was very different from the low-intensity, relaxing workshops. Carlos claimed that he needed to keep strict rules in place in order to help his students learn to connect with their magic powers. Vanessa's going to take over the psychology from here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Yanya Lalich of the Cult Research and Information Center noted that cults often use the power of peer pressure to encourage recruits to accept boundary-violating situations they'd otherwise resist. When a person first encounters the group, they're treated gently. But as that person is sucked deeper into the cult, they're pressured more and more until they're in too deep to escape. This is exactly how Carlos treated his inner circle. He assured his witches and his other followers that they could master their magical powers so long as they abstained from sugar, coffee, and personal connections to the outside world. And of course, they had to utterly commit their undying loyalty to him. That meant, among other things, that followers had to cut off contact with old friends, 
families and other outsiders. Often, new recruits were ordered to quit their jobs and throw away all their possessions to further sever all ties to the material world. Carlos never charged fees or demanded payments outside of workshop enrollment. It wasn't physical wealth he was interested in. It was power. He gave his followers a script to follow when cutting off contact with their families. A practitioner had to tell their parents, you have no child. You are not my father or mother. My father and mother are dead. I send you to hell. With those departing words, the follower would abandon their family forever. One of Carlos's witches, Taisha Abelar, took the separation ritual one step further. After she told her mother to go to hell, she proceeded to punch and slap the older woman in the face. Once an initiate who was separated from the outside world and fully ingrained into the cult, he or she could no longer use the word my in reference to their family members. Instead, a person would have to say the father or the sister or the daughter. One former cult member, Amy Wallace, shared stories of broken families in her memoir, Sorcerer's Apprentice, My Life with Carlos Castaneda. She told of one recruit who dropped her custody suit with her ex-husband when Carlos warned her that she was too attached to her parental duties. The ex's neglect later led to the child's death, but the mother feared to even permit herself to grieve, as this would be viewed as a sign of disloyalty. Carlos continued to cement his control. He forbade photography and all forms of recording equipment at all times. He banned reporters and other press from his home in Westwood, in spite of admonitions that sorcerers had to give up sugar and caffeine, Carlos regularly enjoyed cappuccinos. Carlos only ever had a few dozen followers, most of whom were women. He slept with them during their initiation into the group. The most highly placed women, his witches, all sported identical blonde haircuts and served his sexual needs. They, in turn, performed a similar sexual initiation routine with male recruits. The witches had to give up more than any other follower. They even dropped their original names. So, Marianne Simcoe became Taisha Abelar. Kathleen Pullman was dubbed Carol Tiggs. And Regina Tall became Florinda Donner Grau. All three of these witches had already been a part of Carlos's inner circle when he developed the principles of tensegrity. But in 1973, the witches awakened to find one of their own missing. Carol Tiggs had fled during the night. When they questioned 48-year-old Carlos about her absence, he replied only that she was traveling on a spiritual errand. Rick Ross of the Cult Education Institute detailed 10 tools that dangerous leaders employ to maintain their grip on their followers. One of those tools was an insistence that the leader is always right and never makes mistakes. This, in turn, feeds into another trait, the insistence that no follower's desire to leave is ever credible. In Carlos's case, that meant the only way to reconcile the ideas that Carol Tiggs was a powerful witch and that she abandoned Tensegrity 
was to claim that she hadn't truly left at all. She was only temporarily on another plane of existence. In reality, Tiggs enrolled at a local California acupuncture college near Los Angeles, intending to create a new, free life for herself. In her absence, Carlos only increased his recruitment efforts. He continued to find and rename more witches, including Amalia Marquez, Kylie Lundahl, and Patricia Parton, who was widely considered to be Carlos's favorite. Parton joined Carlos's ranks in 1978, at which time he gave her a new name, Nuri Alexander. Given the insular nature of Tensegrity, it's hard to say what her life was like during that time. We do know that Carlos and the witches still taught seminars where they reached a much wider audience. Meanwhile, Carol Tiggs remained free of Carlos's influence for 10 years until 1983. But that year, the pair somehow reunited, as is commonly the case with Carlos Castaneda's life story. Details are scarce. But winning her back soon became 58-year-old Carlos's obsession. Nobody likes to feel rejection, but some people find this emotion to be fundamentally destabilizing. The U.S. Surgeon General found in 2001 that people who feel a sense of rejection are more likely to lash out with violence, the sense that a loved one might leave can lead a person like Carlos to double down on their harmful, aggressive, and controlling behaviors. Somehow, in 1983, he convinced Tiggs to put her trust in him again, and she returned to his Westwood compound to resume her studies with the community. To explain where Tiggs had been and how she'd returned, Carlos said nothing of the acupuncture school. Instead, he simply doubled down on his earlier story that Tiggs had been traveling the spiritual plane. He added that in a parallel universe, he'd somehow psychically conceived a child with Carol Tiggs, and that infant spirit was made flesh in the person of Nuri Alexander. In spite of the fact that Nuri had been a member of the Tensegrity community for five years prior to her so-called spiritual conception, Carlos's followers accepted the tale. Soon after he proclaimed that Nuri was his newborn spiritual daughter, his behavior toward her changed. He treated the 26-year-old like a young child, ordering his followers to regularly play dolls with her. In spite of Nuri's supposed familial relation to Carlos, he continued to have sex with her throughout her time with Tensegrity. As for Carol Tiggs, she was now officially recognized as the mother of Carlos's child and as a highly enlightened being. She enjoyed her celebrated position in Tensegrity and was venerated alongside the other witches. But... Her return sent a powerful message to anyone else who was uncomfortable with Carlos's rule. No one ever really escaped from Tensegrity. Up next, Carlos faces the next real threat to his teachings and to his ego. Now, back to the story. Since its inception in the 1970s, Carlos Castaneda's Tensegrity had become a small but powerful movement. By 1983, 58-year-old Carlos's vice-like control over his students ensured that he was never questioned. And as he demonstrated with temporary defector Carol Tiggs, no one truly escaped his reach. 
Most of Carlos's followers were utterly devoted to him, but one, Amy Wallace, grew increasingly uncomfortable with his teachings. Wallace had discovered Carlos's books when she was a high school student in the mid-1970s. Wallace's parents struck up a friendship with Carlos after meeting him at a party, and she enthusiastically maintained contact with him through her college years. Wallace never realized that throughout their friendship, Carlos was grooming her for admission into Tensegrity. Some days he would warmly receive her phone calls and letters, and he even invited her on a trip to Mexico. But on other occasions, he would be cold and distant. Because she was unable to anticipate his mood swings, Wallace only tried harder to please him. Researcher and couples counselor Darlene Lancer identified this kind of hot and cold behavior as love bombing. With this abusive tactic, a person will temporarily behave kindly in order to gain their victim's trust and lower their inhibitions. Then, once the target feels dependent on the abuser's affection, he becomes harsh and demanding. This only spurs the victim to please the abuser and win back his affection. Carlos's witches engaged in some love-bombing of their own, as they befriended and initiated Wallace into his circle right after her college years. At one point, although the date isn't known, the witches gifted Wallace with a stone, which they claimed was ensorcelled to help Wallace rid herself of her distasteful body odor to be more aesthetically pleasing to Carlos. They also taught Wallace a spell to sexually purify herself. According to the witches, every time a woman engages in intercourse, she diminishes her power and becomes infected with spiritual worms transmitted from her lover. In order to help get rid of these impurities and make herself acceptable to Carlos, Wallace had to bathe in magic herbs to rid herself of all sex worms. Like other recruits, Wallace was instructed to cut ties with the wider world. She was unique, however, as her mother and father remained lifelong friends with Carlos. As a result, Wallace was able to stay close to them. Instead, she had to make other shows of devotion. That meant that when she was in her 30s in the mid-1980s, she had to let go of her cherished pet cats. Wallace had raised her pets from kittenhood, and she was devastated to give them up. She placed them with a farming couple who accepted the felines, along with bulk-sized bags of cat food and several hundred dollars that Wallace donated for the cat's care. Just seven days after she gave up the pets, she received a devastating call. One of the cats had escaped from the farmhouse and had gone missing. Wallace blamed herself for the cat's disappearance and possible death. Her only comfort lay in her reassurance that this loss was laying the foundation for her to get closer to Carlos. After years of preparation, Wallace was finally deemed worthy when she was about 30. One day in the mid-1980s, Carlos drove Wallace to a cheap motel in Los Angeles. During the ride, Carlos, who was in his late 50s or early 60s, announced that for the past 20 years, he'd been following the Sorcerer's Way, a strict lifestyle that featured sexual abstinence. Wallace was flattered to learn that he would break his long sexual fast with her. It wasn't until later that she came to realize that Carlos had been maintaining a sexual harem for years, 
before and during their relationship, and that she was just his latest initiate. After they checked into their room, Carlos whispered to her, tonight, Amy Wallace dies. When you're dead, nothing can hurt you. He explained later what he meant. By becoming his lover, Wallace was to deny herself her own physical needs, unless they came through him. She was meant to be dead to the world and alive only for the sorcerer to serve his purposes. But Wallace was never able to fully devote herself to Carlos and his teachings, as he increasingly demanded more of her loyalty and obedience, Wallace began to openly question his teachings. This only spurred Carlos to lash out all the more harshly. He told Wallace that she was too fat, too sexually promiscuous, and too unclean because of her youthful drug experimentation, alcohol use, and diet. Wallace couldn't help but see the hypocrisy in Carlos's demands. He'd published in his memoirs that he spent years in the desert experimenting with peyote, but he demanded his followers have no history of drug use whatsoever. He was chubby and kept a poor diet, but strictly regulated what his followers ate. But when Wallace spoke up about her concerns, Carlos only lashed out, accusing her of being insubordinate or resistant to his teachings. Although his hypocrisy was clear, Wallace still believed Carlos was a wise teacher and a real sorcerer. So eager to stay in his good graces, Wallace did everything she could to submit to his teachings. When she discovered that Carlos was sleeping with several of his followers, in spite of his demands that sorcerers be abstinent, she tried to ignore the backwards logic. Carlos claimed that the secret to enlightenment was to always be seeking and questioning, but he also flew into a rage any time a student failed to take him at his word. Wallace tried to pretend the two traits were reconcilable. But she reached her breaking point in the mid-1990s, when she was in her 40s. At that time, she suffered from depression and was taking Prozac. One day, after the pair were sexually intimate, Carlos learned of Wallace's antidepressant use. Enraged, he lashed out at Wallace for daring to take medication without his prior permission. He threw her out of his room and shortly thereafter changed his phone number so that Wallace couldn't call him back. So far, this was typical behavior for Carlos, and Wallace was used to his theatrics. What was new, however, was that at some point after their fight, he was in some kind of accident and had to be rushed to the hospital. The record doesn't reflect the real nature of Carlos's medical emergency. He told his followers that Wallace had psychically poisoned him with her illicit drug use. Wallace first heard of his injury when she called the witches for advice about the argument. Fellow Tensegrity member Florinda Donner Grau informed Wallace of the full story, adding that the other witches and their students all agreed that she, through her recklessness, had nearly killed their leader. This story may sound outlandish to our listeners, but it's important to keep in mind that by this point, Wallace was so thoroughly under Carlos's thumb that she accepted the narrative. Despondent with guilt and grief, Wallace considered suicide. Luckily, she hadn't yet completely cut herself off from the wider world. 
Her friends encouraged her to seek help. The next time Wallace tried to connect with Carlos, he refused to accept her call. Although she didn't realize it at the time, Wallace had a rare opportunity in this latest rejection. She was emotionally vulnerable, and the manipulative Carlos wasn't there to mold and warp her feelings. For the first time in years, Wallace was able to make her own decisions about what was right for herself. But she wasn't quite ready to break with Carlos entirely. She obsessed over the now unavailable sorcerer. She found what news stories and books on him she could, and that was how she discovered the writings of Richard DeMille, the USC psychologist who'd exposed Carlos's writings to the world as lies. As we discussed last week, Carlos first made a name for himself with his book, The Teachings of Don Juan, and its many follow-ups. In this book series, he detailed his magical studies under a Yaqui shaman. But Richard DeMille found that most of the so-called teachings had little to do with authentic Yaqui practices. Carlos misrepresented native spiritual practices, drug use, and even the geography of their traditional tribal lands. In addition, DeMille found that many of Carlos's passages were blatantly plagiarized. Amy Wallace devoured all that she could find about Carlos, who was now in his 60s. After a phone conversation with DeMille and Carlos's publishing company, Simon & Schuster, Wallace found a new goal in life, to expose the horrors of tensegrity to the world. Psychiatrist John G. Clark Jr. treated hundreds of former cult members during his career. He found that escapees could not be forced out of their sense of devotion to a leader. Instead, the first step that leads a person to leave their cult is exposure to objective information about the abusive nature of their situation. From there, the person can draw their own conclusions about their leader and may willingly choose to leave the cult then or at some later point. Wallace's reaction to her newfound information was complex. On one level, she knew that Carlos was a manipulative liar. But after years of trying to win his approval, she wasn't quite ready to break away. So when he invited her to return to the fold in the mid-1990s, Wallace took him up on the offer, but not before she hired a private detective to investigate and discredit him. The sorcerer had always forbidden photographs or recordings of himself or his followers, but the detective was able to work without drawing Carlos's attention or ire. Thanks to Wallace's efforts, these photos are some of the only formal records we have of Carlos Castaneda's increasingly reclusive life during the 1990s. Perhaps he sensed how close Wallace was to leaving, because upon her return, he became deeply attentive. He brought Wallace into his most inner circle. Like the other witches, he gave her a new name, Elf. But as soon as Wallace let her guard down, Carlos resumed his old love-bombing ways. At the end of the day, he didn't see Wallace as special at all. She was just one of the many recruits he loved to dominate. Like Carol Tiggs before her, Amy Wallace was brought deeper into the fold, just as she was on the cusp of escaping from tensegrity. But by hiring a private detective, Wallace laid the groundwork for Carlos's eventual exposure as a fraud. 
Next, tensions rise as Carlos Castaneda is diagnosed with an illness and his godlike image is called into question. Now, the conclusion to our story. In the mid-1990s, Carlos had a few dozen devotees who lived with him on a compound in Westwood in Los Angeles. But Carlos, in his 60s, only wanted more power and dominance, and he'd stop at nothing to achieve his goals. Around 1993, he began to hold more Tensegrity workshops, advertising them outside of his usual customer base of hippies and spiritual seekers. He founded Cleargreen in 1995, a corporation meant to help run the workshops. Carlos was the owner and operator, while his witches were named as executives within the corporation. The Tensegrity workshops were a smashing success, frequently selling out. Carlos often took home upward of $10,000 every time he hosted a seminar. He or his witches hosted a total of 43 workshops over the course of six years. Each session varied in length and intensity. They were always led by Carlos, who would often use the class time not only to teach, but to indicate which of his followers held his favor at any given time. Sometimes he'd call his chosen students to the front to share their experiences and testimony. He also used these sessions to make a personal connection to each attendee and to identify those who were most responsive to his spiritual teachings. These particular students were then ushered into the inner circle. Within the compound, his leadership style grew increasingly self-aggrandizing. He announced to his followers that he couldn't die and that when the time was right, he'd enter a new phase of existence by erupting into a ball of living fire and light. He claimed that he knew this because he'd witnessed his teacher, a Yaqui spiritual man named Don Juan, ascend in a ball of fire as well. In spite of his repeated announcements that he'd never get sick and never die, in the summer of 1997, Carlos Castaneda was diagnosed with liver cancer. He told no one other than his witches, and they strove to ensure that the other followers never knew about the disease. When he failed to show up for Tensegrity sessions, the witches led them instead. They helped him submit manuscripts to his publishers ensuring he maintained a steady literary output. The witches refused to disclose the nature of his illness or offer any explanation for his absences. But Carlos couldn't hide his failing health from his many lovers. As he withdrew from sexual contact, rumors grew. Amy Wallace, the recruit who'd hired the private eye, was still a devotee at the time, although she maintained a level of skepticism that the other witches didn't seem to share. She learned that one witch applied regular acupuncture, which made no discernible impact on Carlos's health. One day, Wallace overheard a group of witches plotting quietly. They seemed to be talking about buying guns and then finding somewhere private to disappear permanently. When she asked follow-up questions, they refused to elaborate. But what Wallace had heard told her all she needed to know. The witches were forming a suicide pact. The situation deteriorated further in the summer of 1997. 
when Carlos collapsed while leading a tensegrity class. As always, the witches performed damage control, but for the inner circle, this confirmed their worst fears. Their leader was dying. The record is unclear whether he sought traditional medical treatment. It's possible that Carlos even believed he could psychically heal himself. According to psychiatrist Neil Burton, self-deception occurs when a person's paradigm and reality are incompatible. Almost every person engages in some level of projection or rationalization. But in extreme cases, like that of Carlos Castaneda, a person becomes so dependent on their own lies that they cease to realistically engage with the real world. That meant that Carlos became convinced that he'd been spiritually poisoned. Recalling his earlier fury at Amy Wallace's use of antidepressants, Carlos concluded that one of his lovers was using Prozac and thus was sapping his vitality. He grew increasingly paranoid, but never identified the culprit in his psychic illness. Instead, his condition continued to deteriorate. On April 27, 1998, Carlos Castaneda finally succumbed to the cancer. There was no burst of psychic fire and no unleashing of magical energy. Instead, 72-year-old Carlos took his last breath and peacefully slipped away. The witches had him quietly cremated and ordered a death certificate. However, they didn't notify the press or Carlos's former contacts at Simon & Schuster. As a result, in the weeks and then months after his death, few knew that he was anything other than happy, healthy, and in seclusion. The remaining Tensegrity practitioners got their first inkling that something was wrong a few days after Carlos's death when witches Florinda Donner-Grau, Taisha Abelar, and Nuri Alexander all went missing. Carol Tiggs reported that they were traveling. Weeks later, another pair of witches named Talia Bay and Kylie Lundahl also disappeared, this time taking Carlos's ashes with them. Born Amalia Marquez and Deanne Jo Alvers, these women were already so alienated from their families, nobody outside of the Tensegrity compound noticed for weeks that they disappeared. It was easy to keep the disappearances quiet when, from the outside, Tensegrity seemed to proceed as usual. The remaining witches and other high-ranking cult members kept running workshops. It wasn't until June of 1998 that Carlos's ex-wife's son, C.J. Castaneda received a call from Clear Green's probate lawyer. Because he'd been unable to connect with Carlos or any of the witches, C.J. was the next contact listed. For the first time in the two months since Carlos's death, C.J. learned of his adoptive father's illness and passing. After hearing the relevant information from the lawyer, C.J. called his mother, Margaret Runyon Castaneda, Finally, they released the news to the press. By June 19th, papers began running obituaries for Carlos. As the reports spread across the country, friends and family of Tensegrity members tried to reconnect with their lost loved ones. 
When the Marquez family were unable to reach Amalia Marquez, aka Talia Bay, or even learn her whereabouts, they filed a missing persons report with the police. Unfortunately, the authorities brushed off their concerns. Talia's brother and former Tensegrity member Luis Marquez said, we tried to reach Amalia, my sister, but she wasn't available anywhere. Later, some people called and told us all the women had disappeared. They might have killed themselves. So we immediately went to Los Angeles and we tried to approach Cleargreen. Nobody wanted to help. The witches had spent their whole lives cutting themselves off from the outside. Police didn't see how this was any different. Later that year, an abandoned Red Ford Escort was found near the Panamint Dunes, secluded mountains in the desert of California's Inyo County. In the following weeks, California police searched the area, but found no further evidence of the missing witches. Five years later, in 2003, a group of hikers found a body very near where the Ford Escort had earlier been spotted. It took another three years before DNA testing revealed that the body belonged to Nuri Alexander, one of Carlos's witches who disappeared in the wake of his death. Although the body was too decomposed for the police to reconstruct much of a narrative, they determined that Nuri had died of sun exposure. The police had no reason to suspect her death was violent or that foul play was involved. The best theory they could come up with was that Nuri had been driving through the desert and had run out of gas. From there, she stepped out of the car and circled the area for a while until she collapsed from heat exhaustion or dehydration. Neither the police nor Nuri's family were able to discern why she'd been driving through the desert in the first place, or what she'd hoped to accomplish by exiting the car. Police assumed that she'd been searching for some spiritual experience in the aftermath of Carlos's death. Although they didn't suspect foul play, the discovery of Nuri's corpse finally gave the police the incentive they needed to open an investigation into the remaining missing women. When the police questioned former Tensegrity followers, they learned that in Carlos's final months, he and the witches had spoken quite openly about ritual suicide. They'd considered many different plans, including buying a boat and disappearing at sea, or journeying to a series of caves in the desert, where they would all die together. As it happens, Nuri's body was found only a few feet away from a network of caves and lava tubes, the police extensively searched the natural tunnels around the Panamint Dunes, but found no evidence of the other witches. As of 2019, the bodies of the remaining four witches have never been found. Officially, Regina Tal, a.k.a. Florinda Donner Grau, Marianne Simcoe, a.k.a. Taisha Abelar, Deanne Joe Alvers, a.k.a. Kylie Lundahl, and Amalia Marquez, a.k.a. Talia Bay, are missing but presumed dead. The leadership at Cleargreen, however, maintains the stance that the witches aren't dead. They're just traveling. Their official statement read, for the moment, the witches are not going to appear personally at the workshops because they want this dream to take wings. 
Carol Tiggs continued to lead Tensegrity workshops for months after Carlos's death. But over the course of 1998, she became increasingly reclusive and has not been seen in public for nearly two decades. Her family has never filed a missing persons report, and there has been no official investigation into her absence. Like the other witches, Clear Green claims only that Tiggs is traveling. As for Amy Wallace, she once more plummeted into a severe depression after she learned of Carlos's death. This time, however, she had outside contacts to support her, and she was finally able to break free of the cult. Her 2003 book, Sorcerer's Apprentice, My Life with Carlos Castaneda, is one of the only accounts of what life was like inside the Tensegrity cult. In 2019, more than a decade after Carlos's death, Tensegrity and Cleargreen still host a series of multi-day workshops available to anyone willing to pay the registration fee, which can cost thousands of dollars depending on the duration and topic of the class. From the outset of his spiritual training in the Mexican desert, right up until he died, Carlos Castaneda maintained that objective truth doesn't exist. Every individual just has their own unique perception of reality. He maintained this belief as the people around him accused him of lying about his history and his revelations. Today, Tensegrity's leaders and practitioners have two different sets of facts to reconcile. There's the one based on the evidence, which suggests that a chronic liar manipulated people to feed his egoistic need for control. The other narrative, promoted by Tensegrity's adherents, says that the evidence simply doesn't matter. The only important thing is the subjective experience of power and self-discovery that each student experiences. So, is Tensegrity real? The evidence clearly suggests that Carlos's students had been trapped by the deadly vision of a liar. But those same followers would respond that, in reality, their experience all comes down to perception. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on Carlos Castaneda and Tensegrity, amongst the many sources we used, we found Sorcerer's Apprentice by Amy Wallace and the long-form Salon piece, The Dark Legacy of Carlos Castaneda, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.